Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the second half of our conversation with some of the production team from Opera Columbus's Madam Butterfly. We are here today with director Crystal Manich, choreographer Susan Van Pelt Petrie, set and costume designer Court Watson, and lighting and projection designer Tlaloc Lopez Waterman. I wanted to ask you- some about um, that goes into design and how all of that works because. Uh, we talked about doing more modern and stuff like that, but looking at the pictures on the website, you guys are still in more of a traditional Japanese house, but your costumes go back and forth between some of the traditional kimono looks to there's a couple pictures up here where everyone's in white underwear with flowy cloths. How did that come about? How did you design using new and old and making this new world? Uh, the, the audio cut out there for a minute, so I apologize if I'm about to answer a question that you didn't ask. Um, <laughs> no, go ahead. Um, one of the things that we we really worked with on the show was looking at silhouette and shape through a fresh, contemporary, modern couture lens. And that lent itself not only to the physical uh, architecture of what the space was going to be, but also the shapes that people are wearing. Um, for instance, it seems like Kate Pinkerton is wearing an 1890s silhouetted dress, when in reality, it's not that at all. And in the same way, we were able to sort of uh, deconstruct the house. So it was one, uh, two walls of screens that could move. Uh, and then the whole platform was automated so that it could deliver us shifting perspectives elegantly and quickly. Um, I, Crystal has, has also... Uh, dabbled in film work um, and being able to shift perspectives became very important for the physical world of what the show is going to be. Um, if that makes any sense whatsoever. It does. Yeah, so That's by, amazing. By um, making that uh, house a turntable and automated, it's almost like the, in, in a similar way to every other aspect of the piece, the different, disciplines are starting to melt right like so where lighting is editing most of the time where you say okay i'm gonna show you to look over here now look over here now look over here for this amount of time and it fades from here to here well now the scenery can do that same thing and turn turn our perspective from one from from essentially one thing inside to outside or outside to inside or close up to far and you know, it's it's the melting, it's the melting of the disciplines. And I think and that in a, in, in a very non-naturalistic way, uh, that gave T a huge canvas with which to sort of give us uh, realistic atmospheric places and then also a really emotional atmospheric universe with the giant uh, sky we had upstage uh, that was a, a behind a very abstracted horizon line of the view from a hilltop overlooking the Nagasaki Harbor. And we made it out of uh, strips of Luan that feel like louvers, that feel like Japanese construction, when in reality, we're using those details in a totally different way. Um, And then we actually made the harbor out of jewelry uh, cable and 
Swarovski crystals. Uh, so every time somebody stepped on the platform, the entire sea trembled and looked like there was little reflections off of waves. Uh, but it's illusion. There is nothing naturalistic about the landscape that we've created, in spite of it feeling like it comes from a very Japanese place. How many crystals were there? Oh God, I counted them. I'll I'll, I'll text you that that uh, number. Later. <laughs> <laughs> the better part of me think, for three days. I think you sent two... a beautiful, beautiful Austrian yeah. crystal onto cable. It was a couple of days in his in his uh, hotel room. Bless him. Worth every minute of it. <laughs> yeah, wow. there was a very there was a natural. Uh, um, there, there was a natural randomness to it that made it feel more real than any projection could have done, or anything of that manner. It, you know, it was, a, it was a, um, it was, it was realism through abstract. If that makes absolutely, sense. yeah. As Desmond Healy used to say, uh, artifice can be more real than reality. What I think. Well, one of the ways T described it to me, and it, and I completely agree looking at these pictures, is he said that everything just kind of went together seamlessly. In some productions, you kind of know where like the scenic ends and the lighting begins or the costumes end and scenic begins. Uh, but I think you two especially did such a great job of just creating a whole world. And it, I guess because you work together well or because you've worked together multiple times, it mm -hmm. doesn't, it never at least in the few pictures I've seen, it doesn't look like there was a scenic designer, there was a costume designer, there was a lighting designer, you know? Well, and, and that extends very much to there's a choreographer, there's a director. I mean, we're, we, none of this yeah. work exists in a, in a vacuum. But what I love about working with this team is the lines are so blurred Absolutely. that the conductor mm -hmm. can give me a paint note and it is totally real and honest. And I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, we should definitely do that. And that, that's not just lip service. Um, right. Yeah, That's so create meaningful work. I, I think I want to. I kind of want to jump in there to to talk about Kathy Kelly, the conductor, because she blew me away in a totally amazing way during our work on Carmen. Because I walked in the room and she stopped during the during the first rehearsal. I saw she stopped the rehearsal and went over to Crystal and talked to her about a moment of silence and how that was going to affect what we were saying at that moment. And that to me, I've, I've worked on a lot of operas now. I don't really know how many, but there is a disconnect traditionally between the staging director. I'm going to say it that way for a particular reason, the staging director and the conductor. And sometimes the staging director will wring their hands and wring their hands and say, I really wish there would be a little bit more of a pause right there. And, but I don't know if it'll be okay for me to ask for that. And then they'll go down there and ask. And then the, and then you'll see this little flip of the head and fine, whatever, or not, you know, and, and it's a very separate set of actions between the two of those people. And that was not the case here. And I think that that, is one more, uh, one more way in which the lines are blurred in a way that makes this a huge success because it means that it, from from day one, from instant one, from rehearsal one, that Crystal and Kathy could and were working together 
to tell the story dramaturgically that they wanted to tell. I think that's very important. Yeah. A lot of times I feel like in opera, the maestro, yeah, kind of runs the show and doesn't always get along well with the stage director. So that, yeah, very impressive that everybody was on the exact same page. That's unique to find a team that's that close together. Yeah, I mean, I I feel like in Kathy, um, I found a great collaborator um, for for these two particular projects because we both had similar views um, on the fact that you know that we didn't like other iterations of Carmen or Butterfly and and what were things that were true to us and um, and part of that is is just our communication in pre production. You know, the amount of emails and phone conversations we had um, was the most that I've had um, with with conductors in recent years. And so it was really um, exciting to, to go through that uh, on, on, on these particular works. I felt like it was needed um, because and we both had similar views, you know, and then she would point things out in the score that I've never heard anyone talk about before and it was really um eye-opening for me and i i've done butterfly a bunch of times so um you know that kind of fresh take and fresh look uh at that is and and again it's what's on the page right nothing that she ever said wasn't on the page she said do you realize this is march piano and i went oh my god i've never realized that before and it's such a simple thing but it actually made a huge difference in that moment and so um you know, it's things like that, again, going back to what's there. Yeah, it's so funny. <laughs> Isn't it funny? I mean, it's, it's funny because we do search for like, oh, how can I put my, and I think a lot of directors say, how can I put my stamp on this? I never think in that way. I My stamp is whatever, uh, you know, I'm inspired by for this particular show in this particular moment. I mean, every show, I approach every show differently because each show requires different um, approaches and different uh, thought processes and so uh, for me it's like not about what's my stamp it's what am I seeing that is on the page and 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 therefore that becomes my point of view you know um, just just from doing that that sort of meticulous work but um, so it's been this team has been remarkable um, in 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 trying to gather these ideas together and actually executing. I mean, that's the other thing too, right? You can get a great group of people who are all really smart and really on the same wavelength, but it doesn't always translate into the execution of the show for whatever reason. But, you know, um, I certainly uh, feel that these, both of these productions um, were able to succeed because of our diligence and, and we kept each other going in order to achieve that. Would any of you, if you were asked to do a traditional butterfly, would you be able to do one or would you take what you learned here and try to incorporate that into a traditional butterfly? I've already turned one down because of that. Yeah. Because I, yeah, I did. Because I realized during this process, it was actually before I even executed the show. It was like a week before I went to production. Someone asked me to do a butterfly somewhere else next year. And I asked, I said, well, what, what kind of butterfly do you want? Because mm -hmm. I'm at the point where I've, I've gone past um, wanting to do it that way, quote unquote, again. And, mm -hmm. um, and the person said, yeah, no, that's the way we want to do it. And I said, yeah, I have to pass. <laughs> because wow. it's, it's, it's no longer, I can't, because I feel like I'd be betraying my, 
um, my own discovery and my own journey with Puccini. I feel like I'd be betraying Puccini, to be honest, be, and, 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 and myself um, in, in what I have discovered through his music and story. And so, um, yeah, I just can't ever again, which is, which is scary because as a director, I mean, I'm saying that on a podcast, which I think is, could be, <laughs> it could be a, it could be death for me, um, in certain ways, but maybe someone else will be intrigued by that. I mean, because it's, it's honestly, I think that as artists in this century that we live in, I think it's very dangerous to say, I'm going to stand up for something and I'm not going to settle for less because we all want to work and we all have to work. Um, because this is how, you know, we make our living, but it gets to a point where I say, well, at what point do I just want to work? And at what point do I want to live what I'm working on? And, um, and I think that that for me, the living is much more important and much more satisfying than just trying to work for the next dollar. And, and, you know, again, I think it's, it's where I am in my career that I'm able to sort of articulate this in this way. Um, so, you know, if I were in my twenties, I probably wouldn't be speaking like this because I'd be, because <laughs> I'd, I'd be very terrified, but I'm just at the point now where I feel like I have nothing to lose because I think the work that I've done and the people that I've done it with, I mean, our work definitely speaks um, to, to, to our views and, and the fact that our point of view works in, in the way that we want it to. So. Uh, I think too, in, in 2018, if uh, a regional opera company were interested in doing a quote unquote traditional butterfly, it would cost the earth and they wouldn't do it. They would, <laughs> they would, truly, they would stage it. They would call a staging director uh, and they would do it on rented scenery and. Costumes. Yep. And rented costumes. Yeah. But that's I completely cool. agree with you because that's that's exactly what Sydney and I did in Opera Santa Barbara. We there was no design choices; everything was rented in. So they had to block on a set that was what fifty, sixty years old and had traveled the world and smelt like mold, and the costumes were hard to take apart and alter because they were falling apart. They were so old, and, and the I'm props sure were based on what it was. At at some point in its life. Um, but as a designer, nobody's going to call me when they already have it in a container truck. Yeah, they, they're not. I mean, like they're they're going to call me when they want to do something new. And all of my work is is uh, definitely a response to a director's interpretation of a piece. Uh, and I can't imagine I'm the guy that anybody would call if they wanted to do a tradition, a quote unquote traditional butterfly moving forward. I don't know who they would call, but I, I honestly don't think anybody's going <laughs> to make that production. Right. Because a, because a traditional butterfly in that sense just should not be done in 2018. <laughs> no. no. I mean, what does that say to us about the human condition? Yeah. But it's happening a lot this year. Just pointing that well, out. I, I know. In productions yeah. or in rented? I meant to say traditional rented productions. Traditional rented, <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. yeah. it sells tickets. It sell, yeah, exactly. It sells tickets, but kind of... Uh, kind of an odd moment to do it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And kind of like what Crystal said, it's not, it's not kind of what we want to. I don't think it's something that we should be per- perpetuating. We shouldn't be continuing to tell that story that it has turned into. We should be able to tell a new story, or the tr- you know a story from the the root of it, from um, a character yeah. perspective, from a, an emotional yeah. perspective, and not from a stereotype kind of you know. And if you're going to sell tickets, interpretation. and if you know you're going to sell tickets anyway, 
to the rented set that you're doing. Yeah, it's cheaper to do the rented set, but if you're going to sell tickets anyway, why not take a risk? I mean, this is where my mind goes, you know, Yeah. that, that they're afraid to take risks, but, uh, but at the same time, if you know, it's going to sell no matter what, then you have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. And then you just, and then you just get accolades for being ballsy, <laughs> you know? So <laughs> I don't, I don't see the downside to that. Um, but I understand it's money. I understand everyone's going to tell me, Oh, they're going to write to me. It's financial. It's financial. I understand that. But at the same time, where does it end? And where as a, as a community in opera, do we say enough is enough, you know, with the money that we have, we're going to try this new approach. And, you know, I, I feel like sometimes also um, some companies are, they say, well, this is how much we're spending on the rental, but if we spent that on a new production, it wouldn't look as lush. And I, I always mm -hmm. disagree with that. I always say, nope, not true. Not if you get the right team. It'll yep. look just as lush and beautiful with $20,000 as it will with two hundred. Yeah, no, your guys' design simple. is simple and gorgeous. I also, I also think that it, you know, this is not my, by way of me disagreeing with what you're saying. I just want to add to it to say in order for this sort of uh, project to work, it's very, very difficult for it to continue on when there's a, any single component that is not on board. Right. And, you know, if I look, if, if I look at, at what this could have been, if, if Peggy of all, you know, most of all said no. Right. Or if, if court was like, I sent in my designs, <laughs> have a good day. You right. know? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Which is a great way to never get hired again. <laughs> I understand. I'm, I'm making it, I'm making it like, I know, I know. Kind of ridiculous <laughs> point, but um, you know, sort we of. Have, we've all worked with those people and they're not collaborators. They're somebody hired them and they show up and they present what they're going to do sort of uh, come what may regarding staging or uh, artistic integrity or it doesn't matter. They're just going to stick to their whatever. And I'm not interested in doing that kind of work. I don't think any of us on this team are. I, th yeah. I think that, that I end up sometimes having that, that, that situation and I'm not really, um, I'm not really poo-pooing it. I'm just saying that when every single component lines up in, in and harmonizes then then we have these experiences where it's you know elevated in a way that you know I, um elevated in a way that makes me sit there in the process and go this is why i do this really difficult job this really difficult way of making a living this is what i wait for Yes, because, you know, and it happens. It doesn't happen never and it doesn't happen always. It happens sometimes. It happened a couple times in a row for me lately. But, you know, it's just. What we what we're after, you know, it really is. And it doesn't matter if you're in Mogadishu or Toledo. <laughs> I want to know where Mogadishu <laughs> is. <laughs> <laughs> I 100% agree. And I think that's why I've stayed away from traditional opera for most of my career. Um, this totally makes me want to do it because it's non-traditional. But it gives me hope for opera. It gives me hope 
for reviving the classics. Um, makes me very happy. Yeah, I also still think the word traditional is so funny because traditional is what one person decided it would be a hundred years ago, but you guys didn't change yes. the music or the words or the story. You just went back to the original text and refound it, which is traditional because it's based <laughs> in what it actually was instead of what somebody's interpretation was of it at some point in its life. Yeah, You're right. right. I think I need to stop using the word traditional and find a, a better word. Well, but... that's I've been actually for the last few years, I've been thinking about like, what's an alternative to the word traditional? And and yeah. I always make sure to say, oh, they want a traditional production approach. Because okay, I, I always try to get the production in there. I mean, it's longer. It takes a while longer to say. <laughs> um, but uh, but I think that um, to differentiate what is the tradition of the staging as opposed to the tradition of the music. I think they're two different things. Yes, You're right. exactly. I, I think people misuse the word period as a period approach to something as well. Um, Crystal uses the word psychological really well in talking about her work as well. Yeah, and I think that and there's a lot, lot of... Right, so the modernity in the period costuming or the period setting is in how you deal with the psychology of what's happening with the characters. And that is best accentuated through behavior and through lighting. And so there's always, in my, in my mind, in every opera score, there is always a moment of surrealism or of heightened reality because mm -hmm. it, you know, especially in Puccini, my God, those long, beautiful chords that sort of lasts for a few measures and then there's like this harp and then there's this, you know, it's just like, it's unbelievable um, what he does. Uh, and the first thing that comes to mind is like Rodolfo and, and Mimi in, in Bohem, um, you know, after, after the boys yell, yell to Rodolfo, you know, Oh, what are you doing up there in the attic? And he's like, I'll be down soon. I, I found someone, you know, and they, and they whistle at him and then he turns to Mimi and then that beautiful music comes in, and that is a heightened moment of Bohem, you know, and that happens a couple times in that piece. But I feel like those are those are psychological moments and and um because that is where we can really feel the emotion of the connection between characters. And so I always utilize lighting to really help emphasize that. Well, and describe the interlude. Oh yeah. So we haven't talked about that's, the interlude. That's that's <laughs> definitely where you were you were going there. Yeah, totally. So in, in Butterfly, um, after the humming chorus, there's this five minute interlude um, that, you know, bridges acts two and three. And in the past, I've always used that interlude to uh, show Butterfly sleep deprived, that place between being asleep and being awake. All of us who went to college had pulled all nighters and we thought we saw things coming out of closets and heard things coming, you know, from wherever, and because you, your senses are, are totally on this weird combination of being alert and being completely mute. And so um, that's always how I've treated that uh, interlude in that she has three different encounters with three different Pinkertons, three different aspects of his personality. And we sort of see we sort of see what their home life was and we sort of understand what she misses about him. Um, and then, and then each Pinkerton abandons her one by one. But this time for my fourth round of, of uh, staging butterfly, um, I decided that I wanted to do 
um, a sort of flashback and a hearkening back to the morning after the wedding night. Again, showing us a glimpse of what her immediate home life was without was was with Pinkerton. Uh, and um, Court and I remember we went through this um, in that first meeting, and um, I discovered that how nice it would be to show Pinkerton as a human mm -hmm. uh, getting, you know, rising up in the bed, seeing Butterfly kind of embarrassed, not really sure, you know, because something new has happened and she's, you know, like what any woman would do like, in that like situation. Like a normal situation. Like a normal situation of, you know, when you're making love for the first time ever and, and all of that. And um, I had Pinkerton put the poppy back in her hair that, you know, she wore on the wedding night. And, um, and then he got out of bed and he tried to make her tea. So because they had the tea ceremony for the wedding, I thought it'd be a nice thing to bring back that he's trying to make tea and he totally messed it up. Like he put the tea leaves in the wrong thing and he didn't really know how to do it. And I had her laugh at him and then come down to him to, to teach him how to make proper Japanese tea. While she did that, the dancers came on in that picture that you described um, of the, the dancers in the white underwear mm -hmm. with the sheets um, behind Pinkerton and Butterfly, we showed the dancers um, in this. Do you want to describe that, Susan? Like what? Yeah. Your situation was? So we uh, we sort of treated it as um, as if they're animating the very air that they're breathing, and um, sort of a, a metaphor for the passion that's between them, and the humor, and the love, and and so the fabric was just we just try to get the fabric really moving in circles and figure eights, and at one point the fabric went up and then it poured down as if they were pour when they're pouring the tea. So it was sort of a mag um, magnifying the action that Pinkerton and um, Butterfly were doing. Uh, and then they'd also disappear. So the moment sort of happens and then they disappear. I, I, it was a lot of fun to work on. So this, this glorious uh, festival of love and, and movement and light uh, is sort of revealed by the house revolving at the end of the humming chorus. And we we restore back to this beautiful vision. And I swear, people in the audience at the orchestra dress thought that it was the morning after Pinkerton had returned, not a flashback to their first night together. And so at the end of this, this interlude, the house revolves around again, and we very quickly restore to the morning after Pinkerton has not arrived. And the audience was shaken. There were gasps of, <gasps> people really thought that that Pinkerton had come back and everything was going to be hunky-dory. They all live happily ever after. And I was, and yeah. we were shocked. I mean, it took my breath away. You broke all those people's hearts. No <laughs> we for a few no. minutes. As Court said in the process often, he said, this is not okay. It's not okay. <laughs> <laughs> To give such hope and then dash it like that—that that is not okay. okay. It's not okay. <laughs> um, but you know, but that's, but also, you know, like it—it—it it, it made us reevaluate, like what is tragedy and when do you play the tragedy? And actually, the answer is you never play the tragedy. You let the tragedy unfold as the piece is meant to unfold. And when you have these moments of aha, this is what we can do for the interlude in order to really. Um, express 
butterfly's intense desire to have Pinkerton back. Um, that the, then the piece, the rest of the act three just is able to play on its own and, and you don't have to add, you know, angst. You don't have to add crying. It's all there in the music and in, 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 in the reactions of the, of the singers of, of what they're playing, you know, in the moment. And so um, the tragedy unfolds for the audience in a very realistic way. I feel the, the way it's traditionally staged is there's never really, at least the way that I've done it and seen it, is you don't really have that much romantic interaction between Pinkerton and Chocho san And so I've never been able to see why she liked him so much because that's yes. kind of like happened in the background. Yes. You know, there's like one duet on stage, I think. Yeah. That is sometimes, you know, they touch at the end or whatever. And and that's about it. And so you spend the rest of the opera being like, I don't understand why she likes him so much. Oh, in this production, they close, semi came off, and they got into bed at the end of the duet. And it was so sexy. Because and she because grabs her hand and like pulls it over to her, to her. That's why she had the That's why I turned to Crystal during rehearsal and was like, oh my gosh, she has the power. Because <laughs> <laughs> you she... never see it that way. And so that's... No, because I it really really important to me because again, if you go back to the original story, what's happening? Pinkerton is 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 given permission and complete carte blanche to marry to buy a geisha and marry her and live in this house. Um, Butterfly understands that she's being bought and sold or sold and bought, um, but has a real connection with Pinkerton. So she thinks it's all real and they do have a real connection. So the only way to show they have a real connection is that they're hot for each other. And that mm -hmm. is what is, that's where the tragedy stems from is that there was actually a real connection there because that duet, you don't write that duet as a composer if you're not trying to show that two people are in love in that moment. And mm -hmm. so for me, that duet is about Pinkerton trying to get Butterfly's trust and Butterfly allowing him him in because she does say to him several times be careful you know i come from a people who are very delicate she says she gives them tons of warnings throughout act one and so um that is not a dumb woman that is a woman who knows that she could get hurt and she lets him in and so that's why it was important to me that the um, end of the duet where we know you know the music cuts out and we revolve the house around as they're getting into bed we know what's going to happen but it's important that that moment is consensual um, and, you know, is that a modern view? Yeah, I would say so. Like there's, there's your modernity there, but I would also argue that in past, you know, productions of Butterfly, I don't think that anyone ends that beautiful duet with Pinkerton forcing himself on Butterfly either, you know, whether or not they take off clothes, you know, and they're just standing there in the garden or whatever. Um, I don't think you've ever seen that. So, you know, that's not, that's not the point of the duet. So that's where that inspiration came from. I wish I could have. Can I ask what it. did you do at the very end? Um, at the very end, uh, after she says goodbye to the child, mm -hmm. she, uh, Suzuki takes the child outside and um, Butterfly, you know, has one last look at them. We had um, talked about going to original source material in the David Belasco play which is the the play that this uh, opera is based on um, there are a couple of things that I extracted from the play that I put into the opera one of which Court and I discovered in that first meeting um, which tore 
court apart in the theater. And I said, well, this is your fault because you're the one who oh, helped yeah. me come up with this. Um, and, <laughs> the terrible and, person. <laughs> and that was, and I said, yeah, well, you're the horrible person, not me. Um, so what is in the original play is that uh, butterfly covers the child's eyes with a blindfold so that the child will not see her committing suicide. Right. Um, what we decided to do, we wanted to have a nod toward the blindfold. So in the uh, humming chorus, I set up that while um, they are waiting for Pinkerton to arrive, the, you know, Suzuki begins to play with the child and Butterfly also plays with the child and they play a game of blindfold. So they put the blindfold on the kid and then the kid walks around in a funny way and Butterfly catches um, her and then, you know, sends her back to uh, Suzuki and then they take off the blindfold and then they kneel by the, you know, by the shoji waiting for Pinkerton. So at the end of the show, when Butterfly lets go of the child and Suzuki takes her out, Suzuki puts the blindfold on the child and begins to play with the child outside while Suzuki is watching Butterfly kill herself. Because in traditional Japanese, um, in Japanese tradition of harakiri or self-inflicted suicide, um, the... Uh, there has to be a witness, right? And Suzuki knows this. So I inherently just have Suzuki know that she should watch, even though she doesn't want to. And the way that she's able to do it is by shielding the kid from being able to watch by playing with the kid with the blindfold on so that the kid never sees the, the suicide. Um, and so as Chocho-san stabs herself in the neck in the traditional jigai uh, way of women killing themselves in, in traditional in a traditional way, um, the house started to revolve and she was on the mattress uh, on the floor. So the house started to revolve. She falls. There's one opening in the shoji. So the shojis now are completely to the audience and closed. There's one that was left open from before. And we hear Pinkerton off stage yell butterfly. And Suzuki looks upstage, grabs the child and lifts the child onto her shoulder to sort of protect the child from Pinkerton. Pinkerton comes in for his second butterfly, looking at Suzuki and the kid, seeing his kid for the first time, and then looks through the open doorway and yells out the final butterfly because he's seeing butterfly dead inside the house. So he mm -hmm. runs into the house. We bleed. We were able to bleed lighting through the shoji screen so that you could see what's happening inside as much as you could see outside because now we're outside. And we see Pinkerton lifting... Chocho-san's body um, through the shoji screens. Meanwhile, Kate Pinkerton, Pinkerton's new wife, comes in to the space and comes towards Suzuki, extending her arms, asking for the child. And the last court of the opera, I had Suzuki turn with the child away from uh, Kate in order to protect the child. And it leaves the audience with a cliffhanger. Like, is Suzuki now going to reject Pinkerton's claim to the child, which which I yeah. think is a it's again it's a little modern to do that, but at the same time it creates interest and it makes people and it made people go <gasps> in <the last laughs> moment because and that's what we want, right? We want people who think they know the story to 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 have a completely different thought process by the time they walk out of there, right? Um, and that was that was totally achieved, I thought, um, by just having that little nugget at the end. Oh, well, does it say in the original text? What happens? Um, it, it it does say that Pinkerton um, comes back in, you know, right. and, and, and sees Butterfly and everything, but it doesn't have anything more than that. Um, 
Uh, and so that's, you know, and I've done different versions of the ending, um, but this was the most prominent that I've ever had Kate Pinkerton be. And, and she's, I'm, I'm having her push for that to get that child at the end. I mean, cause that's an, that's, you know, Kate, Kate is a little bit of an enigma to us because we don't really understand her motivations for wanting the child. Um, mm-hmm. so, so we, we tried to fill in those blanks, um, you know, in, in the piece and also at the end, obviously. Friends, I'm going to need to go. I'm so sorry. This has been so much fun. That's Thank you so much for at, joining us. Yeah, we're actually at uh, almost one and a half hours. So, oh yeah. my gosh. <laughs> That's what happens when you're having fun. Yeah. That's why we said we we usually do an hour, but sometimes they go over because when you start talking and everyone gets excited, it's hard to be like, okay, we have to stop now. <laughs> That's the good thing about this format, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's true. Well, thank you, everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us. Um, we would love at some point to get you all on individually to talk about what you do and about your career path and just theater in general because that's who we like talking to but thank you so much for for creating this production and for putting it on and then for for talking with us about it because it was so wonderful to hear that stuff like this is happening and it gives me so much hope in the opera world and i'm so grateful for you thank you so much well thank you guys so much for having us on and um yeah well i'm happy to talk anytime this is you know this is what this is all about it is absolutely and T, thank you for uh, putting this all together. Great. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. to revisit this production. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> thank you. Till Take we care. talk again. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstocktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at twinstocktheater. Auto music, Dance Macop, is provided by Kevin McLeod of IncomTech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.